0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very excited today, not just because of my guest, Charlie Debevoise. I said it perfectly. If you saw the spelling of this guy's name, you would realize that it's some kind of cruel scrabble experiment. But I'm very excited about my guest, but I'm also excited because the building here at 10100 Santa Monica Boulevard said, you know, you're doing these podcasts. We want to be supportive. And they just built this new conference facility. And it's not even a conference facility. It's like a huge room here. It's probably like maybe 22 feet by 22 feet. There's pictures of animals not found in nature on the walls in black and white. There's one of those white erase boards in case I get a creative idea. There's a huge flat screen TV behind this where we can put our logo of the show, presumably. But I want to say a few things before I get started. Number one, thank you so much for your support. You guys are unbelievable. I'm just blown away by everything that you guys have done for this show and the support and downloading it and listening to it and passing it on to your friends and subscribing. Just been absolutely incredible. So I'm very, very grateful. It was a great year last year, and it's starting off as a great year This year and today is no exception. So when I look at my guest here, Charlie Deba Boys, I oftentimes think about things that I want to talk about. As you know, I do a cold open, and I never know what I'm going to say. And as I'm looking at him, you don't know what's going to happen when you meet somebody. You don't know how they're going to be. And I've met probably over 125 people who've done the show, and Charlie walked in here like no other person has ever walked into the show. He walked in with a sandwich and a beverage and total comfortability. He came in, he sat down, he just casually ate his sandwich, drank his drink, and became prepared to nourish himself and to be the best he can be on this podcast. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. What I noticed about him was something that I talk about a lot in these podcasts which is he has a, a hugability and a lovability and a calmness about him that when he walks in the room, you immediately feel like a million bucks and you feel wonderful and you feel like everything's going to be okay. And I think that's one of the things that's so important in our business. And as I look at him, I want to share a little story about somebody. I used to work at a company and one of the people that was my assistant who worked with me was a young man named Lee Jacobs. And whenever I've had assistants or interns or people working with me, there's always all different kinds of people who work with you. And it's amazing what you see through your eyes and the eyes of these people because the way it works with people who are assistants and who are starting out in any business, a person like myself has the history of everybody they've worked with. They know every single person that they've worked with. And some they don't remember, and some they remember more than others. And if somebody were to give you a list of all the assistants and interns that worked with you, If you took an hour of time, you'd be able to rank them and say, oh, that person was the absolute best. That person came in at this point in time early. They left late. They were like Radar O'Reilly from the old MASH. They knew everything that was going on. They never called in sick. And even when they were sick, they were sick in the office, but they were doing everything they can they were pushing themselves to new levels. They were always asking what they could do. And then there's other people who you have as interns or assistants. Someday they won't show up. And they don't call. And they don't email. And they don't text. But you're busy that day, you're running around. The next day they come in and they sit down and you're like, hey, pal, how you doing? Um. Where, uh, where were you yesterday? oh uh, yeah, I, um, uh, I got in a fight with my girlfriend. Uh, she was looking the text on my phone and she, you know, smashed my phone into a million pieces. And I, I don't know. I just couldn't come in. I couldn't call you. I couldn't text you. Really? You couldn't borrow somebody's phone on the street or in a store and just, you know, give me a call or anything like that? Uh, I didn't think about that. I'm, I'm, um. You know, I'm sorry. And you realize that any other person would fire this person on the spot. But for me, I like to try to help them be better if I can. But then as these things happen, you realize that old quote from Cus D'Amato, who is Mike Tyson's trainer, who said, if you're born round, you don't die square. And so people have it or they don't have it. They have the skill set, or they don't have the skill set. And I'm looking across from people who are doing things for me in this office here. I have Alex here as one of my producers, Max, Tara, my assistant, and Tim. And all of these people, one of the things that I notice about them is they all (laughs) seem to work harder than everybody else. They all seem to want to make a difference more than anybody else. Sometimes I sit across from Alex or Max or Tara or Tim, and I say to myself, why are they working so hard? And I know why they're working so hard, because they want to get to the next level. They want to move people. They want to show people what they're doing. They want people like me to recommend them to other jobs. So there was this guy named Lee Jacobs who came in. Wonderful guy, lovable guy, had a great sense of humor, funny, and always got there earlier than everybody else, always stayed later than everybody else, and always worked smarter and harder than everybody else. And I loved working with this guy, and I would recommend this guy to anybody if he asked me to. And so... One day I get a call from Lee Jacobs and he says, Barry, I've, um, I've got a job now as the VP of development for a company called North South Productions led by Charlie Devovoise. I said, that's fantastic. He said, listen, if you want to get together or if there's anything you have that might make a difference, let me know. I said, as a matter of fact, I do have a project I want to show you, and I'm going to show it to you before I show it to anybody else. And I met with him, and I got on my laptop, and I showed him a pilot presentation sizzle reel that was made by a young magician, comedian, actor, Named Adam Trent, who just finished his second stint on Broadway on a show, The Illusionist, that was outselling The Lion King. But the sizzle reel was called Destination Magic, and I show it to Lee, and he really likes it, and he says I want to move forward on this, and hopefully with my relationship with Charlie, he will agree with me. But I just got here. I said no problem, Lee, and lo and behold Charlie watches it and he likes it and he thinks it's viable and he gives Lee the okay to make the deal to put together for Adam Trent and Destination Magic. A kid who has never done a television show before who I am believing in and I'm betting on that he's going to do great things. A kid who was on cruise ships about three years ago And went from cruise ships to Broadway because of his hard work and his tenacity. And so I was hoping I could find an executive that could mirror his work ethic. So we do the deal with North-South Productions and Charlie's Company and Lee. And then we go out and we set up pitch meetings. And we go out to all these places. And what happens? What happens is we go to a big, big multi-billion dollar company that's starting their own television and broadcasting network, and they hear the pitch in the room. Adam is huggable and lovable like Charlie and Lee, and he's talented, and they can see his work ethic and what he did, and they call up Charlie and Lee, and what do they say? They don't say, we want to do a pilot. We'll just give you a little money to do a pilot. They say, which is the rarest of the rare, we want to buy the show and give you the entire series of 10 episodes. That's the commitment we're going to make to you. And when I got that call from Lee Jacobs, it was the greatest feeling in the world because it let me know one thing that I want to stress here today. <laughs> as you've heard probably many times in your life, there's no substitute for hard work. There's no substitute for being the kind of person who works harder than everybody else and smarter than everybody else. But also, there's no substitute for relationships and being a nice person and a kind person who you want to work with and you want to be around. And it's no secret to me when I meet you, Charlie, that Lee is working at your company because you have the same vibe that he has, the same feeling that he has, maybe just a little bit older with a little bit more gray hair. <laughs> so at the end of the day, the most important thing to remember, as you should always know by now, but keep drilling it into your own head when you're going out at night with your friends. Think about how long you're going to be there and what you could be doing in place of those hours. When it comes time to think about, well, maybe I could go home and just smoke some weed and just hang out and chill in front of the television set and play some video games. Think about all those hours you do that a year and what it takes away from. And I'm glad that I was able to form a great relationship with Lee Jacobs, but I only formed the great relationship with Lee Jacobs because I saw what an incredible worker he was and what a great, great person he was in the office and the kind of person that I felt safe with who I could rely on. So at the end of the day, everybody, if you want the kind of career that Charlie has or the kind of start to a nice career that Lee's having or Adam Trent who killed himself and went out and shot and directed and produced and paid for his own pilot presentation that sold... Remember, hard work and relationships will always take you to where you want to go.
1: Here we go in three, two, yeah.
2: One at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
2: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? I'm on the air!
0: People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied.
2: If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. (laughs)
0: Here we go. You're f***ing firing me up. Cats? Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments.
2: I love this man! Barry Katz. Back in the house! 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 Let's do this!
0: Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy, and his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away and in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast so go to iKillJFK.com, pick up this documentary i guarantee you never been seen before and it will blow you away welcome back to industry standard with me Barry Katz, very excited today. It's so great. Thank you again for everything. Thank you for going to the website, by the way, and clicking on the Amazon banner at BarryKatz.com. That's so great because Amazon gives me a little commission on your gifts. doesn't cost you anything, and it adds to the Jewish Boy College Fund. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest, Charlie <laughs> Debo-Boys because I don't want him to fall asleep here and go into some kind of diabetic coma. So here we go. Charlie Debo-Boys is the co-founding partner of North South Productions and has been making media in various forms since the late 80s. Since starting his company in 2000, he's produced 45 series and hundreds of hours of television in all genres for a dozen different networks including unscripted comedy, lifestyle programming, and investigative documentaries. Charlie and North South are best known for producing the smash hit series Impractical Jokers, and they also have done nine seasons of Say Yes to the Dress Atlanta. And they recently launched a comedy division, which is developing character-driven, non-scripted and scripted series for both TV and digital distribution. And this company is a force to be reckoned with. Please welcome my guest today, the wonderfully huggable, lovable Charlie Debovoise.
3: First time I've ever been described that way. Thank you very much, Barry. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No. How are you normally described? You know, prickly and, <laughs> and, and annoying. No, I mean, no, I appreciate that. Thank you for the intro.
0: No worries. So I have so much to ask you because we don't usually get reality. I say reality. We don't get... People specializing in non-scripted program, even though you're going into different genres, that's been primarily what you've worked on. I think the last people we've had on or the only people we've had on in that area are Jeff Apeloff and Brant Pinvidic, sure. who just changed yeah. companies just mm-hmm. the other day. So this is a rarity for us, but people always get excited to hear about this kind of thing and how it happens and what's the inspiration for how you get in this crazy business. So... I hope you don't mind but normally I like to take a little more time but I think I really want to delve into this and go way back to your history of where you grew up and how you sort of had an inspiration of any kind to to be in this business like what was your family like what was happening hmm. in that area and what was the first thing that happened that got you thinking about entertainment
3: Uh yeah that's that's a that's a really tricky question I was looking you know at your bio and The sort of circuitous route you took into your uh, your career, and um, mine is is equally um, uh, unusual. Um, But uh, you know, I grew up in a very homogeneous um, leafy suburb of New York City. Um, I I like to say I'm from the land of I'm I'm from the tribe of the lawn people. Uh, (laughs) What was the leafy suburb? Um, It's a very small town about an hour um, due west of New York, New Jersey, called New Vernon. Um, And it's a gorgeous, you know, exurban. There's a larger population of deer than there are of, of humans, which is annoying as hell. They're not they're not cute. So um, when your
0: pets go out to pee, they're actually trying to cover up the deer
3: pee. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, uh, have you ever hit a deer? Yes, absolutely, twice. I mean, it's just the it's, same it's, deer. I no, no. I mean, it's it's hard not to hit deer when you're driving around New Jersey. It's it's a real problem. Now, did you kill both the deer? No, just the one. And the other one, I you know, I feel awful about this, people. I mean, really. Did you strap it to the hood after? No, uh, you know, you just look at your car and you go. Well, there's ten thousand dollars worth of damage and a dead deer. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Karmically bad stuff is happening. Both
0: are karmically, bad. yeah.
3: So, I'm um, you know, I grew up in you know, uh, wearing, I mean, it's it's so it's it's interesting. I grew up in a very sort of preppy enclave, uh, went to you know, tennis clubs wearing whites and ultimately couldn't stand it, was bored to tears by this world and couldn't wait to get away from it. And that's, I think my curiosity and my lack of interest in being in this very conservative world um propelled me into other worlds what did your parents do for a living uh my father was a marketing guy sort of gun for hire who worked for you know the pharmaceutical industry at one point in his early in his career to a uh, manufacturing industry i mean he just he was he went to wharton he was a marketing guy and your mom uh, my mom is uh this irrepressible incredible character also part of my dna um sort of a relentless networker um who um, taught for 20 years taught english at a um all girls school in summit new jersey and um but uh I, she is and she's 84 years old and just doesn't stop uh amazing character now cuz the way you're describing the town
0: it sounds like it was more than middle class it sounds like it was upper middle class town so you grew up having pretty much everything you needed or wanted or were your parents more conservative in terms no, of what they no, gave no 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 my
3: parents you know i had two older sisters who um you know this is back in the you know the 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 late 60s early 70s um i was you know my sisters were you know were rebellious hippies um you know my uh sister at one point my eldest sister um you know referred to my father as you know capitalist swine and uh and my mother as you know the capitalist swine's whore uh, good good times back in the 60s um she then became an investment banker just to let you know how the the traditional trajectory of baby boomers um and uh so it was a vibrant um very social household i mean every weekend uh, was a cocktail party or a dinner party and um i was an indentured servant um who was uh really i think raised to serve drinks and 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 hors d'oeuvres at those parties that was my main purpose in life for the first you know 10 years
0: was that something that was common when people had dinner parties in the neighborhoods that their children would be the ones that served the yeah. hors d'oeuvres and the cocktails well at
3: our household i mean i think that was also part of my you know that was the atmosphere that i was raised in was just this this Constant stew of very smart people um, who were, um, you know, very issues oriented. I mean, the 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 wives, many of whom were stay at home, you know, stay at home moms, uh, were you know super sharp, very opinionated. And uh, you know, this was in the stew of the the sixties and seventies. And tell our audience
0: something you noticed socially about these people together drinking and how they socialized that shocked you as a kid and you couldn't believe what you were seeing or maybe there was well, something. Well, nothing
3: really shocked me. I mean, they were, you know, um, it wasn't, uh, I don't know if anyone has seen the ice storm. I mean, there were I no. I love the ice storm. Amazing. Well, there was the ice storm minus the key party. I mean, you know, but it was, you know, these were couples who socialized together for decades and, um, they, you know, they all traveled in the same, you know, sort of social circles in this, this affluent, you know, suburban area of New Jersey. And um, so. Because the reason
0: why I'm asking is yeah. one of the things that I find that people don't talk about that much is that. It's hard to find couples that are happy. That are truly happy, you watch them in a restaurant. it's not like the dining dead. they're actually conversing, they actually love each other, and so back then, these couples did you feel like a sense of love between them, or did you feel like these people were cold fish?
3: No, 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 they weren't cold fish at all i mean they were <clears throat> they were amazing characters. I mean, there was a guy bully uh bully shirtliff, who was you know six foot four, had this enormous you know walrus mustache was a brilliant lawyer. Incredibly argumentative. Um, there was this zany woman, Marion Mundy, who uh, wrote a column and was just you know hysterically offbeat and and quirky uh, and smart and and um, you know and they engaged me in you know in this world. I mean uh, you you know you couldn't get through there without you know overhearing some you know intense debate about the the subject subject du jour. Um, so it wasn't a, you know, it, it wasn't a, it was, it wasn't a bunch of typical country club goers. They were, you know, they were engaged people.
0: Now you said that you couldn't wait to get out of that environment, but yet you were around well, all these really you know, interesting people.
3: Because it was still a, a world of, of constraints and, and of a certain, you know, um, uh, Homogeneity, and uh, so you know, I got uh, like everyone else in my family. I got shipped off to boarding school, and went to um, what I call, um, excuse me, Deerfield, but it was Deerfield School of the Blind, uh, which is this old, rigid. Wait, it was Deerfield Academy. Deerfield Academy. Which so is I went a to
0: Deerfield. Very prestigious school.
3: Yeah, it's it's uh, and it's and been o- around since the late Deerfield, late 1600s. Um, that's for kids freshman through senior year? Yeah, I went as a freshman. It's one of the top boarding schools in, in the country. And so anyway, and and it's changed a lot since I was there. When I was there, it was all male. Um, but my father had gone there. So, you know, there was this family tradition of going to boarding schools. And, and specifically, I went to that school. Um, I played a lot of hockey. They had an amazing uh, sports program. So um, I went and, you know, immediately realized, first of all, that Um, As good as I was a hockey player in New Jersey, um, I was, you know, on the B and C team of this very intense boarding school. And that forced a very significant shift in, in how I perceived myself. And so um, that, and then I was, and thus realizing that, you know, I needed to redefine myself quickly, because I wasn't, you know, uh, these, the kids that they brought into Deerfield were, you know, top from Canada or South Boston. And um, it also, you know, I'd spent so much of my early life, you know, as a jock, that, um, you know, I was bored with it. So I I was surrounded again there, I found my little coterie of rebellious kids in a very, very conservative school um, and uh, we created a um, this thing called the Ashley Coalition, which uh, challenged the traditional school spirit. And we wrote letters to the editor. And and you know I had uh, you know I was with kids who were sons of ambassadors, and and um, a kid uh, who was son whose father was the editor of the Herald Tribune. All these amazing kids. That was one of the great benefits of Deerfield. You know, what I chafed against, um, and that was part of my journey away from the burbs and into this world, was the incredibly codified, conservative uh, perception of the world. So how did you break free? I went to NYU. I think I was the first, like, boarding school student ever to go to NYU. I mean, it was, it was, I got there and I was, I, I breathed this incredible sigh of relief and I was like, I'm, I'm with my people um it was uh new york uh in the early 80s i got there in 1980
0: ran Village by washington square park
3: yeah i lived in uh the east village in 81 82 um you know the the scene was amazing my my first day of school after being at deerfield um was my you know was going to eat breakfast at the the school cafeteria um which is where um Rick Rubin in the the dorm where Rick Rubin started uh uh Def Jam. Um I was sitting in the cafeteria and it was whatever, 7 8 o'clock in the morning, and two drag queens came in um, you know, after a night of of intense partying. And I was like, I love this place.
2: You
3: know. <laughs> uh so uh and then I lived in the East Village for two years. Um uh, back in the early '80s, and that was its own crazy war zone. Um, and I just I found that um, it was a place where I could redefine myself and um, and find my own interests. And um, I fully embraced the liberal arts um, school uh, schooling that I got there. I didn't go for the film school. I ended up, oddly enough, getting a degree in French literature and philosophy. So you too will qualify you
0: to be an Uber driver.
3: Yes. Today. But, you know, in fact, what's interesting is, is the world of, uh, non-scripted TV. Um, our industry is populated with, um, liberal arts graduates. Um, it's sort of a land of, of curious misfits who, uh, love storytelling. Um, but, you know, aren't necessarily on the, you know, sort of the, the, the feature track or the, the, um, the sitcom track.
0: Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do no. for a living?
3: No, none whatsoever. So when are I graduate... You ang-
0: are you anxious? Right now? No.
3: <laughs> At that moment? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I you know, what's funny, if, if anyone listening has seen the movie The Graduate, I had a classic graduate moment. I mean, I graduated with this completely useless degree. and
0: There were uh, a lot of graduate moments in that movie, and I'm visualizing one that you're having. I'm I'm seeing the camera through the legs of Anne Bancroft right now.
3: No, it wasn't that one. It was, um, so uh, my parents lived, you know, again, in this beautiful area of New Jersey. It was on five acres, and they had this pool. And right after graduating, you know, I went out, and this was the most sort of directed and, uh, and focused I was, I went out and got a, um, a floating lawn chair and, um, and a case of beer because you could, you know, buy alcohol and that age. Uh, and, uh, and, and some watermelon. I thought watermelon was also important. And, uh, I floated in that pool for, for days. And, uh, and I sat, and I remember looking up and I'm seeing like just my mother's Legs from the knees down. That's all I'm sort of looking. I'm looking up that far, and she is handing to me um, sheets of paper that she's um, taken the liberty of getting uh, letterhead uh, for me to start thinking about writing letters to potential employers. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. So you know, what the point? What's the point of that? Let me let me think some more. With uh, as I float, uh, so it was sort of like the the scuba gear yeah seen in in um uh, uh in the graduate so um but they were clearly wanting me to get the hell out of uh their house um and um I hadn't quite figured out what I was going to do I thought I was going to be a writer and a journalist um that was sort of my you know that was my goal coming out of uh my liberal arts education so they handed me a job, basically. They said, why don't you do this? I, I had applied and gotten a job at Hill & Knowlton, which is a big PR firm. And I'd gotten a job at another, you know, I, it was it was actually a friend of my parents who uh, worked at a company called International Flavors and Fragrances. Um, and this is to say that I understand the plight of many liberal arts graduates, is that you get out and you have your degree in complete or you have your degree in anthropology and psychology, and you're like, what the hell am I going to do? So I think the point is, is you you move forward. You have to make decisions. And so I ended up taking a job with um, a company my father was working with at the time. Um, and I took it because it brought me out to Los Angeles, and where my sister and brother-in-law were living. And my brother-in-law was working, um, my sister Ann, um, who's this— incredibly wonderful human being, uh, was um, living in Los Angeles, uh, teaching kids with learning disabilities, and she was, um, uh, was and still is married to um, a, uh, a budding documentary filmmaker by the name of Alex Gibney, um, who is a, you know, legendary um, documentary filmmaker and uh, so I went out there working for this company that my father was with, doing something that was completely irrelevant to any interest I had, but it got me to LA. That lasted less than a year. I quit to become a writer. Um, I took a course at UCLA, and I was going to become a writer. Um, and uh, it uh, was. A half hour writer? No, or no, no. drama writer. I was, was going to be a, a, a journalist. It wasn't even in TV. The teacher at the time. Uh, at this program was working at a publisher in Los Angeles and she got me a job as a copy editor doing, um, uh, they owned uh, these fitness magazines. Uh, I think they owned some porn as well. That was very simple. That was very common in LA. The, The publishing industry was various forms of porn. There was Architectural Digest, which is, you know, architecture porn. There was Hustler, which is porn porn. There was Weeder, which is like muscle porn, um, and so I got a job as a as a copy editor.
0: And um, your teacher helped you get a job. Yeah. How often do you think that
3: teacher got her students jobs? I have no idea. I have no idea. Roberta Smooten, she's a novelist who now lives in um, Las Vegas, New Mexico, um, and uh, yeah, she was she was great. She got me that job, um, and uh, I ended up then moving over to Peterson Publishing, which was, uh, there's now the Peterson uh, Automotive Museum, I think that just opened up this amazing building on Wilshire. And um, so I worked there doing, you know, sort of as a, as a, um, uh, an editor at these publications, um, and also doing freelance um, journalism for um, any publication I get my hands on.
0: And, what kind of places are you living at here in Los Angeles, knowing that you came from a palatial, leaf filled lawn environment? Well, in no, I mean, the, the
3: more important transition was coming from, from New York. I mean, I, I came to LA and I really wasn't interested in being on the beach. Like, I, much, I, I gravitated to downtown. So I actually um, got an apartment on 9th and Serrano. Wow. Um, this was 85. That's a rough area, it was a rough then. area. I had a huge apartment, and I and I frequented um, this bar in downtown LA called Al's Bar, which was this incredible punk. It was a bar that looked, resembled the inside of if you imagine it was like a giant ashtray. Um, it was it was a cave of of you know of, of uh, graffiti and and cigarette smoke and um, and cheap beer. Uh, and it had amazing bands like uh, Black Flag and Minutemen and Meat Puppets, and so that was sort of my scene when I first moved out here. Got it. So how do you make the next transition? So the thing is, is I've always been, I've always been ambitious about whatever I was doing. So I was always interested. You know, when I was working at this publishing, at Peterson Publishing, um, you know, I was just this young kid right out of college. And I was already pitching magazines to the publisher. I was this guy who was like insisting on uh, knocking on the doors of the publishers and saying, I have an idea for a magazine. And at one point early on, I also tried to start my own magazine. So my entrepreneurial streak really started growing at that period of my life. And I also, you know, a light went on. As soon as I started working at these publishing houses that I could be surrounded by other creative people in a business setting. And that is, uh, I think a big, you know, having parents who really were just from the business world, they really only understood, you know, lawyers and and bankers and, and marketing people to, you know, find worlds that were other than that was, was a, a great relief to me.
0: Were your parents the kind of people that would call you up and say, Charlie, we're so proud of you, we love you so much, or were they the kind of people who didn't express those emotions?
3: Um, My parents are, are, you know, they're loving people, but they're they're not, they're very um, laissez-faire, you know. Um, We were, you know, free-ranging in a real way. I mean, my parents lived on the East Coast. I had, you know, my one sister, Anne, was living in L.A., I was living in L.A., and my other sister was in Asia, So they're all about creating autonomous people.
0: Do you remember the last time your parents said, "I'm proud of you, Charlie"? Uh,
3: Actually, my mother recently. My mother, um, in her her dotage, has become, you know, a lot warmer. And, uh, but they're not, you know, it's it, it's not like Sigourney Weaver in this, The Ice Storm. No, I mean, no, because no she wasn't like that. No, there's but, a
0: little bit of that. But sometimes that drives people when their it, parents are not like, hey, sure. you're, like, you're Charlie, you're the best. Oh, uh, I mean, you know, no. you're going to do anything. You're, no, no, no. And sometimes when people don't have those kind of parents, they're very driven to prove that they're going to be. Sure.
3: Uh, there's a little bit of that, for sure. Got it. So what's the next step? I start hearing about through my brother in law that he's working for this company in Tennessee. So Alex, not only was he doing front lines and, and, and starting his own production company, um, but he was also uh, a, you know, a writer and a journalist, and that's what I was sort of pushing toward. And this company was called Whittle Communications. Um, there's this guy, Chris Whittle, who is still, you know, he's a serial entrepreneur you know, brilliant guy, amazing salesman um, who continues today to create businesses. And, um, but anyway, he had started this company in East Tennessee uh, in the town of Knoxville um, called Whittle Communications. And Whittle um, had owned Esquire and had sold it for a ton of dough and was now doing what they call place-based media and had just started this thing called Channel One. And Channel One was this controversial um, network, which was distributed through high schools around America. So it was in like 8,000 high schools, and it was 10 minutes of daily news, and to many it was a Trojan horse of corporate greed, because those 10 minutes of news had uh, two minutes of ads. And so in order for these high schools to get all these free televisions and free access to this 10 minutes of news... Um, the kids had to watch two minutes of commercial. It was banned in California, it was banned in New York, but it was, you know, in 8,000 high schools. So Chris started this company, and it actually was a company called 1330 before that, but then it became Whittle. And um, I went there to be an editor, and, and, you know, staying in the magazine print mode. And because it was this... This amazing place of it was sort of a pre.com entrepreneurial environment.
0: Where do you train to be a journalistic editor? People go to school to be a journalist. Yeah, but a lot but of do people. do you go to school to be an editor?
3: No. Well, no. I mean, I think magazine editors. Um, a lot of them came out of not necessarily journalism programs, but a lot of them were, you know, English English uh, major you know, liberal arts types. Um,
0: I'm saying that because that wasn't a specialty of yours, yet you get the gig doing something you didn't do before.
3: Uh, well, uh, this was something, you know, when I was in college, um, I worked my way, I made extra money working as a, um, as a proofreader at law firms. So I'd work from midnight to eight o'clock in the morning as a proofreader, which is essentially what copy editing involves i mean there's a there's there's a lot more to it obviously but the essential skills of copy editing which is one of those entry level jobs in magazine publishing is you know i got through being a proofreader in law firms
0: what's the biggest fuck up that you could ever make or that you ever made as a editor or proofreader
3: um you know i got so bored uh working at these car magazines at peterson that I would start completely rewriting uh, the the writers' um, articles and including like these obscure references to French literature, you know, because I, I mean, what else was I going to do with my useless uh, French lit, you know, uh, degree? And um, so I almost got fired for that because um, the, at the the writers were getting so pissed off at at my editing. But I think like the move to California, the move to Tennessee to me was sort of emblematic of that period of my life, which was to just take a leap into another world. And, and Whittle was this you know, amazing environment. Um, uh, you know, we were called Whittleites. There were like 300 of us who had been recruited from New York and LA who are now living in this, this, uh, the small city of Knoxville. Um, and which is an unlikely place for a bunch of you know media media elite types, um, and uh, but also a really interesting city. Um, and uh, so I was working there, and then that company six years into my you know tenure at it started spiraling, um, and um, they ultimately went out of business. Um, Chris went on to start um, this thing called the Edison Schools. Uh, he also started a school in, in uh, a private school in New York. Um, very interesting guy um, and then I um, jumped over to a production company. so at that point, um, there was this wily entrepreneur in in Knoxville by the name of Ross Bagwell, who had a production company which he had just sold to Scripps and Scripps, um, which is a big media company. Um, was getting into the cable business, mm-hmm. and um, the you know the creator and uh, of HGTV is this guy Ken Lowe. He um, was looking for a place to house his company, and there was this guy Ross Bagwell had created this company called Cinetel uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, which was creating more half hours and hours of TV than any other of cable TV than any other company in the country in Knoxville. He's this guy, I mean, you've got to meet him to believe him because, you know, imagine kind of Big Daddy uh, from uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, he was this, you know, had this big gut, always wore suspenders, was always either smoking a pipe or a macanudo and, um, and had all these, you know, sort of one-liners um, about how you should produce TV shows. And that guy was cranking out you know, 400 half hours a year for early cable TV. So Discovery, TLC, um, um, A&E, TNN, which was Mm pre-Spike, needed tons and tons of programming. And this guy was like, well, I'm the guy to do it. And uh, so he um, started this company, Cinatel, and um, realized that volume TV, was where it's at for these companies. they needed you know lots to fill fill their air. so he had sold his company to Scripps for an ungodly sum, and, um, and then um, the head of development uh, at his company, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Stephen Land, who's uh, an amazing producer and entrepreneur, um, he uh, stayed at Scripps, and so Ross needed a new head of development. so he hired me. To be that person,
0: even though you've never done that in your life,
3: never done it in my life. Why do you think he
0: hired you to be the head of development when you've never done it? Would you have hired Lee Jacobs if he had never done it before in his life?
3: No, no. Uh, you know, I, I, I had developed things at Whittle. I mean, he saw in me as he did in Stephen. I mean, Stephen um, came out of, I believe, the you know the Knoxville Chamber of Commerce or something, and and is now you know a, a huge player in the non-scripted world. So he had an eye for people who could sell. He was looking for someone who could develop TV shows, but who could also be the face of the company who uh, networks.
0: Now, here's an interesting thing for you that I think is important to tell our audience. If you hire somebody who's the head of development at your company, what percentage do you want them to be a great salesperson, and what percentage of them do you want to be an incredible eye for talent and ideas that will sell?
3: I think it the two have to go hand in hand.
0: Have you ever had anybody in your career that was like the guy could sell ice to the Eskimos but didn't have a creative bone in his body, but you wanted them in the room?
3: I don't think I don't think in our industry, you can have both. Um at least in my in my estimation, I think that's what makes finding that person so hard because you need people who are creative who can also sell.
0: Got it. So you're here at this company. You're hired as the head of development, and the horrible thing about these kind of jobs is it's not like being an assistant or an entry level thing where you can glide or make a few mistakes or just do the status quo. You have to exceed, their expectations. So he's naturally thinking that he wants you to do this because you're going to sell stuff and you're going to get it on the air. So when did you make your first mark at the company? What happened? What did you rally around?
3: Well, the first, uh, meeting I took was with Ross. And again, he is, he's, he's kind of, he's legend in these worlds. You know, he, he's, uh, at this point he's probably in his mid 60s and he just he's made a ton of money sold a ton of TV he just he doesn't give a shit like he walks into the room and he's fearless and he he exhibits that kind of you know I know more than everyone in this room combined kind of vibe. So the first time you were in a room with him, tell me what it was
0: you noticed about him that you use as a technique today when well, you're in a room. first of
3: all, one thing I didn't use is that, you know, he he always, he smelled of cigars and, um, and Old Spice. It was almost as if he like bathed in Old Spice before he is, he's, he's just- Wouldn't that be eternal off the well, to, well, I mean, it was just, it's it's sort of one of his hilarious quirks. He's from sort of a different generation. I mean, this is a guy in the 50s, saw TV and he was like, this is what I wanna do. And he was from Nowhereville, East Tennessee. He ends up becoming a page at uh, NBC. He was, a, uh, he was an associate producer on Howdy Doody. I mean, a completely, and these are the kinds of people that I find that I gravitate toward, who are completely self-created entrepreneurs. I mean, he self-mythologizes constantly. I mean, he tells stories that he's told, you know, dozens of times. And yet he is the real deal. I mean, super creative, self-made guy. I, I love that type. Chris Whittle is another one of them. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, my, our first meeting was with um, Brooke Johnson. Uh, Brooke Johnson uh, was running a at the time. And I was, you know, he breezes in, um, and he's not giving a shit, you know, he's fearless. He's known Brooke forever. And, um, and I'm like sweating and terrified and, you know, I'm reviewing my notes and, <laughs> and I'm memorizing lines and I'm forgetting sort of the essential ingredient. And that is in order to sell, you need to connect with people. I wasn't connecting. I was too terrified to connect. And yet he goes in and he just, you know, he, he tells hilarious stories. He is, you know, he, he's quirky as hell. Uh, cause he's this, you know, dumb as a Fox Southerner who, you know, cuts the most amazing deals you could ever find and has sold more TV than, you know, anyone I know now. Um, and, uh, you know, and I learned from him that it really is, you know, he said, son, you gotta, you gotta spit on the fire for a while, you know, don't, don't jump right into the, the, the pitch, you gotta spit on the fire, uh, meaning you gotta, you know, chat, you gotta, you gotta connect, so, you know, slowly but surely I learned that, um, I just had to be myself, and that, you know, dating back to, you know, uh, working my parents' cocktail parties, I mean, it's, it really has elements of that, where you are, socializing with your peers um, people who are interested and want what you're what you're selling and those are you know sort of these um you know you're selling characters you're selling formats you're whatever it is they have to believe in you
0: if you were him and you hired you and you observed you in that meeting would you have fired you
3: no, um, I would have, you know, uh, taken me out for a drink afterwards and said, dude, lighten up. You know, he wouldn't have said dude ever in his life, by the way. But, you know, son, you know, they're just people lighten up. And um, and that is uh, absolutely true. I mean, it is a, the the relationship between. Uh, The the seller and the buyer is one of the, you know, the oldest relationships, uh, you know, in civilization, you know, Um, and the the relationship between producer and programmer is, you know, there's there's mutual need. Um, They need you.
0: And before we talk about your first success at this company and the first thing that happened, talk to our audience about what you just scratched the surface of, because it's one thing that we never really talk about on the show, and I think it's a really important thing. So based on what you observed of these great salespeople, talk to our audience about the relationship between the seller and the buyer, because what you're about to say transfers to every walk of every profession. Sure, But nobody's ever really broken it down. And it seems to me that you had the real training of what it was all about firsthand.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it is important, you know, what I was doing right was I was doing my homework, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, um, studying myself into an absolute frenzy before going into these pitches, um, making sure that I understood what the ideas were, what I I understood uh, who I was dealing with, but I was forgetting um, that essential ingredient that is people want to, they're, they're ultimately going to be entrusting you. With potentially millions of dollars, and um, and if they see your you know your, your sweating bullets and uh, you're you're stuttering because you're you know you're so anxious about the pitch and you know these these were my first pitches you know I I lightened up pretty quickly, um, and that they're just people, you know uh, especially in our industry because our industry is uh, no one really knows what makes a hit TV show I mean no one, you know I mean everyone wants a hit TV show but no one really knows um, how to make that happen otherwise it would be a lot easier than it is um, and so uh, they are looking to you f- for something that inspires them something that inspires you and you have to communicate that you know that that is the you know and I'm still learning that you know because I you know we've all gone through periods where, we're sort of throwing shit against the wall because we don't have a clear focus of what we think works. Um, and so, uh, you know, you talk about um, con men, you know, or someone who can someone who can convince, you know, anyone, you know, can uh, sell snow to Eskimos. Uh, and I've known a few of those, you know. Um, they imbue, they, they convince people. They, they con you with, uh, a sense of trust. And um, I think the, the positive side of that in selling is um, that you really are genuinely enthusiastic and excited and inspired by what you're selling. And that gets communicated.
0: Got it. So tell me the first thing you sold without the big guy.
3: Um, well, it wasn't the most inspiring thing. But it made sense. Um, Discovery back in the day, this was, um, I was pitching a guy named Mike Quattrone. Um, he was running Discovery at the time and, um, it was a very simple idea. And I think he was willing to, um, test the waters with a one-off documentary for this young producer. Um, essentially what was what he was doing. He wasn't about to hand me some, you know, Tentpole uh, series that uh, would, you know, involve lots and lots of, of money and 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 focus. This was some. It was a very simple idea, um, and it was a documentary about train stations. Believe it or not,
0: that was the documentary.
3: But you know, and I'd also pitched other things. So we'd go in there and we'd have you know pitches that we put out. And we would hand to you know our programmers, and and I actually stopped doing that after a while.
0: I'm thinking um, to myself,
3: you're racking your brain as the greatest ideas
0: no, to sell no, 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 and no, to put no. together, and I'm going to go was... out and knock this out of the park. And you're going in and selling a documentary well, on trains. I,
3: no, but I also was pitching other things that were less. Um, and this is another lesson I learned, frankly. You know, I was pitching shows that were more complicated. Like uh, at one point, I was pitching a show uh, that I loved called, uh, small towns, big secrets. And it was about the sort of unknown stories of, of small town America, sort of, you know, the, the dark underbelly of, of small town America. Um, and they, you know, they weren't going for that. And then I sort of go, well, what about a documentary about the great train stations of America? And he was like, sure, let's do it. And I was like, what (laughs) are you kidding me? Um, and it was just a simple documentary about, you know, architecture and, and the history behind, you know, sort of these, these, these places like Grand Central and, and, uh, what was, um, a New York Penn Station, which they sadly tore down and put up, you know, uh, Madison Square Garden, one of the great ugly buildings, uh, in New York City. Um, and, um, so, but it was great.
0: So that was your first sale.
3: Yeah. So really Ross was about lifestyle programming so we were doing we were doing a lot of stuff for the budding hgtv we were um doing uh you know things for discovery this but this were all daytime programming there was this incredible character named chuck gingold um who was running daytime programming at um at discovery uh and um you know so i was dealing and he was a contemporary of ross and those two would like you know, they were like bull mooses in the same room together. You could see their egos inflating and they were... Their old know, spice old. clashing. Yes, exactly. So, um, but, uh, so Ross, I was with Ross for a few years, but then at that point, I was really tired of living in, in Knoxville. So I moved back up to New York and and was, um, everyone at the time uh, was going to the Woodstock of, uh, of uh, our generation, which was um, the internet bubble. And uh, so... I um, developed an idea for an internet website, which was... With your own money? With my own money. Um, and I went out and raised uh, an angel round um, of about 1.5. And this is in 99. Um, closed the angel round a week after um, the bubble burst. Uh, and then um, created this website, which was um, a, the relationship channel. Um, It was called Love Track, the relationship channel. And uh, it was, the idea was you found yourself along this continuum of where you were in a relationship and you clicked on, you know, dating and up came, you know, match.com and and a bunch of content about, you know, how to date. And and the next one was like, I want to get married. And you'd, you know, go through, we had a relationship with a knot. And um, the whole purpose of that was to ultimately Send people to um, couples therapy. We created uh, encrypted chat rooms where couples therapists could provide therapy, and that lasted about ten months. Um, the you know the whole sort of I- the the internet bubble had burst, and um, I you know retired that business, and a week later started North South.
0: Okay, so you retire that business and you decide to, again, invest your own money. you got to run your own company, do your own thing, pay your own bills, and do what your friend down south did.
3: That was a model I understood.
0: And so when you created North-South, what was the second and third choice for the name of the
3: company? Well, the... First thing I did, actually, was I called um, a friend of mine who was working at Ross still at that time, a guy by the name of Mark Hickman, and he was living in Knoxville. And I had observed Mark uh, close up, and here was a guy who uh, was incredibly detail-focused. He was a great producer. He was someone I could hang with. Um, And I knew that he would be much more detail-oriented than I was, <laughs> frankly. If I was focused on development and selling, I knew that Mark could manage a lot of the other stuff that, that I really didn't want to deal with um, and that he would be a great partner. And so um, Mark uh, is um, this you know, wonderful, you know, smart, pragmatic businessman, but he was also a producer. And so I called him. I said, Mark, you know, let's start a company. Um, and he said, mm, uh, I'm not so sure. You know, I want to do my own thing. He was still working. He was actually had just uh, been producing a show called Trading Spaces. Um, Mark, is one of
0: my favorite shows has probably did over 2000 episodes.
3: Well, Mark was the one who cast that show um, in the early days. Um, it was being produced at the time by uh, by Ross TV, Ross Bagwell's company.
0: You know, Whitney Cummings was a runner
3: up for the page Paige Davis. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so Mark, you know, he was on a good run with that. Um, But at the same time, things were happening at Ross that, uh, that encouraged him to, you know, find other opportunities. So um, he said, well, why don't we set up separate companies and, and we'll, you know, we'll have our own, you know, S-Corps and we'll do some projects together and see how we, you know, how this marriage works. And um, so, as we were coming up with names, and I was like, "Well, you know, Ross used to Ross Bagwell used to reference um, people from the north as fucking Yankees." Um, so I was this fucking Yankee, <laughs> and uh, and I was like, "Well, I'm north, and you're south, and you know, north south. There's there's a there's a name, and we were like, that makes a hell of a lot of sense because Mark was in Knoxville, I'm in New York, and and to this day, there's still this great push pull dynamic between um mark who resides in knoxville half our company is in knoxville and uh the other part is in new york so there's this you know sort of great dynamic
0: so you're in a company where you're in a partnership you also are putting money into surviving Yep. what was the thing that happened that made you realize that hey i'm never going to do anything else
3: um what well, was the, the first, successful well, thing that happened? Well, what happened was Mark had developed a relationship with a guy named Doug DePriest. Doug De relationships everybody. Yeah. Doug uh Doug De was head of development at the Travel Channel. Um and this is in 2000. And where they had
0: even less money.
3: And uh yeah and and um and I think, you know, Doug was just tired of hearing the same pitch from Mark and was basically like, look, go figure out some programming about Miami. And so he came back with a whole slate of shows about Miami and, um, and he was like, great. I want you to do five of them. And they were like top 10 beaches. Um, I, I, at, at the time E had this hilarious series called, uh, uh, it was a party series. What was it called? Um, Wild on Wild and out or was Wild it, it was no, wild, wild On, Wild On. Yeah. With, wild uh, on.
0: With Brooke Burke, was it like- Yes,
3: exactly. And so I said to Travel General, I was like, guys, you've got to have your own Wild On. So I said, why not do, you know, um blank Babylon, you know, Miami Babylon. So I, I came up with these ideas for doing party shows, which of course was a great excuse to, you know, party. And um and so what was great about this is that Mark really didn't like being in New York, and I didn't want to spend much time in Knoxville, Tennessee anymore. So we set up an office in Miami to produce these shows. And this office consisted of a, uh, we were working out of an apartment that we had rented. And um, we got these five hours of TV with, with uh, travel. And um, that was, you know, to me, that was like one of the greatest things in the world that had ever happened to me, is that I started my own company. It's my second company. Started this company with Mark, and we were in South Beach for Christ's sake. I'd never been to South Beach. This was like Shangri La. After growing up in the leafy burbs of New Jersey, surrounded by a bunch of wasps, to be in fucking South Beach, <laughs> it was brilliant. I mean, I loved it. And who did you hire to direct and produce these shows? How did you find we them? We hired this rangy group of people. <laughs> I mean, you know, some of them are still alive. <laughs> You know, it was a it was a wild wild period in our lives he says looking wistfully off Uh what was your was, social life back Oh my god it was what was our you know this I mean if you're going to have a midlife crisis <laughs> South Beach is possibly the place to have a midlife crisis wouldn't you agree it's the only place in the world where there's no
0: minorities. Whether you're white, Asian, Latin, black, everybody's the same.
3: Uh, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's it's you know it's it's sort of a stupid Vegas on the beach kind of environment. And and we were you know my job was to spend time with party promoters and 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 clubbers. I mean we did this you know hysterical piece on these um, champagne uh, 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 champagne waitresses who made like 40 grand a night, but it was sort of... In- How did they make 40 grand a night? Uh, I'll explain. I mean, they were working at a place called Pearl, which was this sort of infamous club that... Um, and it was the intersection of sex, alcohol, and clubbing, you know? And, and that's really what drives I Outreach. think I've only
0: been the one of those intersections.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and so their job was to, you know, bring in essentially hot women that they knew... To drink champagne that is being acquired by very wealthy men. So this is that's how clubs work. This is the ec- the club ecosystem.
0: hires beautiful women to just come into the club and drink the champagne. Well, they're of not rich hiring people. them.
3: They're, they're hiring the the waitresses um, to largely try to attract very you know sort of young attractive women, and you know uh, and that attracts wealthy men who are willing to spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of champagne. And that's what... But what the, is the $40,000 a night? For they, show, they sold a shitload of champagne. And they would get tipped. Big time. That's so incredible. we have this hilarious scene with these two, these amazing women who sitting on a glass table with their legs you know, spread with thousands of dollars in bills from tips. Um, and I was like, oh, I love this place.
0: Must be an amazing job for a woman when she only has to spread her legs when she's counting the money. That's fantastic. (laughs) I love that.
3: So you're experiencing success and and living this life and and, making money now. And we're well, a little bit of money. I mean, we you know we were still sort of hand to mouth and and we had sold you know five hours of TV to Travel Channel and then you know again thanks to Doug um, he suggested why don't you think about the Caribbean? So the second year we did eleven hours on the Caribbean and I spent three months, you know, traipsing about, uh, the Caribbean in the middle of the winter. Um, and, um, and then, you know, in our third year, um, we did like 94 half hours and hours of TV, uh, cause we had sold a bunch of stuff. Cause one thing that we never stopped doing was developing. So even as we were, uh, I mean the, the toughest decision our second year was to hire other people to pr- help us produce these shows while we continued developing. But you hired the right people and obviously
0: you did great work because people wanted to hire you again.
3: Um, I, yeah, essentially. But, you know, again, going back to, you know, our days working with Ross, we knew we wanted to do, you know, uh, volume series and that's what the networks want anyway. So we were pitching, you know, um, home uh, and, and again, this was an, another relationship we had developed. Um, We had heard from uh, a good friend of ours, Chris Herzl, who was at TLC at the time, that they were interested in a home renovation show. um, And we ended up producing um, 90 episodes of a show called In a Fix, which is a hilarious show from back in the day, which was kind of a parody of Trading Spaces.
0: Got it. And so... That's the point in time when this was all happening where you realized we're not going to go back to doing anything. We're doing this. This is a great That's partnership. Right. And what was your partner's strengths and your strengths?
3: Well, interestingly, I mean, we both like to uh, develop and sell and produce. Um, so what we would end up doing is in the early days um, is selling enough shows so that we could divide and conquer. So he would oversee you know, uh, a series, um, with its own showrunner. Um, and I would oversee my series, you know, a series with my own, you know, with my own team. Um, and that was sort of a, a saving grace in that we, we knew that we needed our own sandbox, you know, that would be our own, but I would say overall Mark is, you know, way better at operational issues, um, way better at, um, you know, we had to, we, we decided early on that we uh, were going to take a big loan and, and, um, uh, and buy equipment. Because in, in the world that I'm in, um, you really need to own, you know, you, you, you need to, to make investments. And
0: the reason why I should explain to everybody why it's better to own your own equipment is because on every budget that a network gives you, they could give you a budget from their person, but mostly they ask you to put together a budget. And so you have a line producer put together a budget that includes the cost of the cameras, the director, the sound, the lighting, the editing bay. And if you own the cameras and you own the editing equipment and you own the lighting package, you put a line item what's normal for any production to put on there. And that line item could be back in the day, it could be $5,000 a week for the editing bay. But if you have the editing equipment and you have the guy in the bay, whatever you're paying him and whatever the amateurized rent is, you're making the profit off of. And that's why it's very uh, cost effective for production companies to own a lot of their equipment.
3: But it's also, you know, and this is something I, you know, I tell my, my kids is that there is, you know, an equation of risk reward. I mean, you know, the, the, you you risk smartly you benefit from that and and you know at the same time you are risking and you are uh there have been at least 3 near death uh uh financial experiences for Mark and me in the course of of the 15 years of that we've had our company but that is just you got to be able to roll with that so we you know we really found a great kind of symbiotic relationship um, where I've, you know, always traditionally been more development prone, but Mark also develops. I'm also, you know, engaged in, in the, you know, the business of, of North South. Um, But I tend not to work uh, to, in too much detail on uh, the financial piece.
0: You talked about three near death financial experiences, which is what most businessmen experience where... They think to themselves, "It's over. I mean, we're done." So, how did you
3: recover from those? And how did you? How you recover from any near-death experiences? You sell shows, so you have no choice. And and I think you should, you know, be aware of your own uh, your own strengths and your own tolerances as a human going into a entrepreneurial venture. Um, because if you do not have this sort of essential um, will to survive, <laughs> if you don't have that essential, um, you know, sort of ambition and 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 just grit to wake up and continue selling, then you shouldn't do it. Because you will, you know, and Mark and I like to say that in the the best of times, you're going to have a shitty time coming up. And in the worst of times, it's going to get better. So you just, ha- you just work off of that. And you just keep working, you know, but you, I think that, I mean, I say that you, you, you know, that's why we work. No, it's because it's what we do. It's, it's what I am as a human. I just like to, uh, to create. I like to develop. I like to sell, you know, those are things that I do naturally.
0: Awesome. Tell us about the formation and the ground level Approach to Impractical Jokers and how that all came about and from the germ of the idea until it's sold.
3: Well, you know, Impractical Jokers is a, a perfect example of what we are doing um, in a big way uh, on a bunch of fronts, um, but it mostly boils down to one thing, and that is talent. Um, James Murray was... Uh, this, you know, development executive, um, who was working for me. And I guess it's been about seven years since he started working for me. And he's kind of a Lee Jacobs type, um, in that, um, or Lee Jacobs is kind of a James Murray type in that he is, he's, he's got more ambition than I think anyone I've ever met. Um, he is, uh, um, he just can't stop selling. Um, he is always interested in, uh, in, in his big plan, um, and, and I'm not even sure exactly what that—I mean, I think I know what James's big plan is, and that is to do what he's doing now, which is um, to enjoy life as much as anyone can possibly enjoy life. So James was working for me, and um, he was always developing shows with himself in it. Um, and I, I did with himself in, with it. himself in the shows. Yeah. So he was Was he was, he was an actor. Or well, no, he a- was, he, so, so, you know, before he started working for me, uh, long before he started working for me and when he was in high school, he developed and he created a, um, an improv group called the Tenderloins. Uh, and the Tenderloins, um, consisted of these, uh, these four guys who'd known each other from parochial school, uh, in Staten Island. And, um, they, um, uh, had been for years developing shows and trying to get it on the air. Like he, they had sold a show to A&E. They had sold a show to Spike. And, uh, and then, you know, by the time I met James, he was like, you know, he needed a job. Joe was one of the other tenderloins. He was working at a baby, you know, uh, uh, retail store. Um, Sal was a bar, you know, had a bar uh, and Q Uh, was a fireman. And these guys, you know, continued trying to develop stuff. I mean, because, and largely because of James. I mean, James is a a force of nature. They're all forces of nature, but James is the guy who was always developing and always selling. And he was doing that for for my company and with all kinds of different shows. I mean, we sold a show series to Discovery that James had developed. Um, So he and his buds um, developed Uh, impractical jokers and, and James sold it. So, I mean, my, uh, my credit that I will happily take um, is my ability to hire guys like James and let them do what they do best.
0: Were you in the room when
3: it sold? Nope. I was not. Got it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I, I give incredible credit to those guys. And again, what I do now with Impractical Jokers is I I manage, you know, and I allow them to do what they do best, which is to be brilliant comedians. So we're we're in our fifth season. Um the guys right now are on a cruise ship um <laughs> that is the Impractical Jokers cruise ship um filled with, I don't know, two thousand uh, Jokers super fans. And so, you know, that Are you filming that? Yeah. Uh, so that experience, uh, yeah, that mayhem, uh, the experience of Jokers, the experience of seeing what the power of amazing talent um, can do uh, has really sort of led us to um, creating uh, this comedy division. And um, we uh, recently closed a, a pilot deal with MTV with the great talent. And what, what we do all day long is... Now, what kind
0: of comedy shows? Are they still unscripted? or you all like-
3: unscripted, yeah. yeah. Uh, one is a hybrid scripted. Uh, so um, it is a, uh, a pilot that we sold to a network um, that is still in early development stage. And that is um, a parody of a QVC that um, all the scenes behind the scenes are scripted and everything where they're interacting with the the products and the people selling the products are real, and we're actually going to sell products.
0: Fantastic.
3: So I'm very excited about that.
0: And are you allowed to talk about the comedy person that you did the deal with?
3: Yeah. Um, so um, I hired this amazing woman, uh, Lisa Kleinman, um, and Lisa is a is sort of, I call her the queen of, of UCB New York. Um, she's this amazing improv performer. Um, she's just, she's just a, you know, smart, um, she has a very loud voice. I have to say that because I joke with her about that. Um, and, uh, but no, she's, she's just, she's a brilliant comedian and a brilliant performer, but she also has this talent as a developer. Um, and so she spends her days, you know, thinking about great talent, scouring the world for great talent, talking to managers talking to agents, and uh, talking to people like uh, Barry Katz, who you know, know the comedy world better than anyone, and, um, and we meet with these people. And we start talking to them about what their interests are, what their, you know, and we start developing shows together. And so we start with the kernel of great talent. I mean, Impractical Jokers, at its core, is a kind of a stealth improv show with these great high school buddies. So it's a sort of buddy comedy. It, You know, the, the hidden camera component. Well, what
0: makes it work is the chemistry and the relationships that they have. Of course. So Lisa brings these comedians in, these improv people. Yep. And who is the person out of all the meetings that you saw that you were able to say, hey, we can sell this and it's sold?
3: Well, I mean, there was the the QVC format that that is, but did that, that, that rally around the comedian? That well, that that came with uh, some comedians and, and the chemistry of that, but also just the the comedy behind it is is you know it's, it, it's rich with comedic potential that world. Um, but recently, uh, she brought in a guy by the name of Mike Kelton, a UC beer uh, in New York, and a very funny guy, um, and. Um, we developed a, um, a show which is essentially uh, an internet roundup show because Mike, you know, Mike loves the internet. He loves all that stuff.
0: Now, do you worry that there's been so many internet roundup shows, including the one by the late Patrice O'Neill who did one for VH1,
3: or do you um, don't care about that? No, no, because, because the nature of the show really is about Mike's point of view also his pursuit of his own internet fame
0: tell me the show that you produced that to this day you think about and you're like oh my god man I, I just this, I just wish this was not on my resume
3: uh, out of the 45 yes. I mean oh my god there was this one show um that we did uh, for food Network um, a few years ago, um, with this talent uh, that um, was such a train wreck, um, and the show actually would have been a brilliant series for HBO because um, it was that dark. I mean, you know, we got down there, and 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 Scripps and Food Network, you know, those are brilliant brands, um, and Scripps is a is an amazing brand maker, and you know. They're not looking for. Uh, they're not looking for controversy. They're not looking for, you know, the, um, in this case, a, a very dark world of dysfunction that this t- talent represented. I mean, he was. I, I'd, you know, I'd be surprised if, if he were, not either in jail or in, you know, uh, or six feet under. I mean it was just, it was such a train wreck. And I mean, it would, again, would have been great as a, you know, a verite look at extreme dysfunction. Um, But that's not exactly what uh, would work on Food Network. So I would say that was an interesting case. And, And one thing that you mentioned early on, and I'll, you know, uh wrap this up but um is the thing that i love about what i do and that applies to the journalism that i was doing um out of college um to the work i was doing at whittle and that is you know my interest in interesting people and and that the great thing about the the world of non-scripted whether you call it reality or you or you're looking at you know great feature docs like Crumb. You know, these are documentaries about amazing people. And those are the things, you know, you know, whether it's Duck Dynasty or our American Chopper or Impractical Jokers or you know, Monty and Lori on Say Yes to the Dress, these people are extraordinary. And we give them vehicles to be extraordinary. And that's that's the fun aspect about what I do.
0: But also the fun aspect is that seeing whether America and the world responds to it or not. Yep. And that, as much as you do. Yeah. All right. A few more things before you leave. Tell me one holy shit moment in your career that our audience would love to hear. Something that happened that is... Legal? No, I'm Whatever kidding. that happened that <clears throat> somebody would
3: not believe that you had to deal with. You know, South Beach, which again is the, the land of, of misfit toys. I mean, the people who live there are just, you know, and I'm going to, you know, sure get like flamed for this, but I mean, there's a large group of people who are, um, who move there because, you know, they're, they're kind of broken. I mean, they're working in the nightclub world. And of course, those are the people that we end up, you know, in some cases hiring. And, uh, I had this associate producer, um, when I was doing, you know, that, this clubbing, um, hour who went missing, I mean, she was awol and so you know I ended up producing the next you know two days without her. And um, we had we had been shooting this scene um, with uh, at this nightclub with Nicole Van Croft, who is a playboy playmate. and it was at this crazy club called Level, which had all these different like circles of hell, basically levels of levels of hell that you could get you know trouble that you could get yourself into. And at one point, you know, Nicole and uh, and my producer went missing and um, I ended up producing the rest of the show by myself. But um, that was the kind of stuff that could happen in South Beach. And did, they, and did they ever resurface? Yeah. And what yeah, did you find I fired. out? Well, I, I can't go into too much detail. I think, you know, that I'll leave it to your imagination.
0: I have a very deep imagination. Your proudest moment in show business.
3: Um, my proudest moment is when I look at, um, shows like Impractical Jokers and and other, uh, series where we have, you know, multiple seasons and, and often with the same team of people and they are this wonderful, happy, um, family working together to create a brilliant show. Um, Say Yes has the same team, you know, Jen Holbach and, and her team are amazing, and they function as these tight knit families. Um, and um, my my job is to not muck it up, you know. My job is to to spot and to maintain these happy ecosystems, and and that's that's what makes me happy.
0: Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel you to get to the next level.
3: Um. Oh God. I mean. Our world, you know, the TV world is so, it's tough. Um, you have to have a thick skin. So, you know, the disappointments are frequent. You know, shows get canceled. You know, the the DNA doesn't work on a show and it falls apart. I mean, it just doesn't deliver what you want. Um, so it's hard to say exact, you know, to pinpoint w- which disappointment Um but I've had some shows that I, I was super proud of. Like there was a show that we did seven years or so ago called Fight Quest for Discovery. It was a martial arts show, and, and it was sort of immersive travel. It's like um, Anthony Bourdain with, with martial arts, if you, if you will. And it was a great show. I loved that show. Uh, the talent was amazing. Uh, Jimmy Smith and Doug Anderson, amazing talent who were like giving it their all. I mean, they were getting their asses kicked <laughs> in different wonderful places around the world. Um, and to for that show to not go forward was was a disappointment, but it was also to this day one of my one of my favorite productions. God,
0: last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's getting out of college floating in a pool with a case of beer and their mom? handing them pieces of paper with letterheads or any executive in this business that's trying to figure out how to take control of their lives and get to the next level and be the kind of entrepreneur and successful executive that you are?
3: Well, first of all, I wouldn't say that everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I think I, you know, interview young people all the time. Uh, I've had many assistants uh, over the years. Um, I have, uh, an 18-year-old daughter and a 21-year-old son, and I—I I want them to know themselves. I want you know. So, what I would recommend is know thyself, and those things that you enjoy and do well pursue. Uh, it's that simple. Uh, you know, I—I I, um, I know I'm—I'm uh, I'm basically good at developing ideas and selling ideas and so I pursue that Um, and I would not be a good banker in fact I would suck royally as a banker so you know trust yourselves and your instincts about what you're good at Um, I know that sounds incredibly vague but when you're starting out um, that self-awareness is everything you know Um, because if you're forcing yourself into a a, you know you're uh uh, you're forcing yourself into a role that that you don't believe in you'll you'll suck at it awesome charlie man
0: you were on fire today (laughs) i gotta start eating a sandwich before i do these podcasts (laughs) thank you so much it's your first podcast right
3: My first podcast, yes. My next one. Next one we do will be completely different. I have a whole, you know, separate career I'll tell you about. Really?
0: No. Will this be your last podcast?
3: (laughs) I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. Me too. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. As promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend... A podcast live with one of my guests meet them shake their hand ask them a few questions or else if they're out of town out of state or out of the country we'll skype them in or facetime them or anything like that so they can be there okay let's do it okay landing on carol Reddy's from morning view kentucky congratulations carol Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, we landed on Gina's Cackle, October seventh, two 2015. Heading reads, Interruptions, Tangents, and Cold Opening two out of five stars. Gina writes, please let your guests speak. Stop interrupting with your crazy tangents. Enough with the cold open. Not shocking this guy is Jay Moore's manager who constantly interrupts his guests as well. (laughs) Drop your ego and let your guests tell the story. It interrupts the flow. Stop saying for those of you who don't know. Well, Gina, thank you for the constructive criticism. I appreciate it and you are rewarded. Congratulations! And as always, you've listened to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
2: They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name put you on shoulder. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same